Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Taking down the temperature. Hi, I'm Mike Gavin, filling in for Gordon Deal. Coming up this weekend, many Americans are fed up with how nasty politics have gotten recently. We'll profile the groups hoping to change that leading into the 2024 elections. How to procrastinate less and take more action in the new year. Also, the top tech trends for 2024. And how to get the airlines to pony up more dough after they bump you from your flight. Always be polite and act nicely, but you can ask what else they're able to offer you. So you don't have to take the first route offer that is presented to you. If there's another route that you're familiar with that you're hoping to get on, you can suggest that. Wall Street Journal reporter Allison Poley has tips and tricks you need to know later in the hour. As we get ready to turn the page on this year and head into the 2024 election year, heated rhetoric between parties is at an all-time high. In response, several groups are working to bring people together from all sides, not necessarily to change anyone's minds on the issues, but to at least get them to have a civil conversation about it. More on that now from Aaron Zittner, reporter and editor at The Wall Street Journal. Aaron, it sounds like a great idea in theory. How did all this come about? There are tens and tens of thousands of Americans who are participating in these uh, efforts by various groups to bring the two parties together. There's just a big group in this country that calls itself the exhausted majority. They're just tired of politics, tired of the coarseness, and they think that partisan animosity has gotten so bad that it's a grave danger to this country, that we can't come together to solve the big problems that we have to solve. Uh, So there's an appetite for this kind of thing. And organically, a number of groups uh, uh, created themselves, a lot of them after the 2016 election. They have names like Braver Angels, Listen First, More in Common. I mean, a lot of these pre-existed the election of 2016, but a lot happened since then. And, you know, this is a very big task they have because partisan animosity and the anger in politics is just so formidable that um, they've got, you know, a tough road in trying to convince a country of 300 million to tone it down and find ways to come together. And some of these groups are seeing a lot of support from donors who also think that politics has gotten too nasty. Talk about that a little. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, it might be true or it might be cynical to say that the forces of incivility, they're like the waves pounding on the beach every day. I mean, partisan uh, news media, social media, uh, coarse rhetoric from people at the very top of each political party is out there every day. And these groups could feel like grains of sand on the beach being pounded by just the kind of overall tone and tenor of politics. But there are some things that kind of suggest some momentum for them. One is, again, tens and tens of thousands of people have participated in various kind of uh, bridging, come-together programs intended to bring red and blue together. And yes, there are serious, uh, there's serious interest from the philanthropic community. One set of donors alone which includes the foundation started by Charles Koch, who's the libertarian conservative industrialist. You know, might know about the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity. They're mm-hmm. big conservative donors. They've come together with some very liberal groups, and they've pledged to raise $100 million for these civic society organizations. They've already raised about $40 million and given away about $30 million. And the uh, other elements that suggest some momentum here are there's a big uptick in 
in interest among uh, academic researchers, social scientists who are out there testing different advertising messages, different uh, online interactive techniques, and different kind of rules for in-person conversations to kind of come up with some metrics and guidelines on what works best uh, in lowering partisan hostility and how best to kind of do the marriage counseling of bringing red and blue together. And the final thing I'll say that suggests some seriousness here is there are serious players in the policy debates in national politics who are looking at this. And, yeah, there are governors involved, but, you know, there are people who are in it who aren't in it for self-promotion. So one person who I didn't get a chance to include in the story is a top person at a group called Numbers USA. They're a conservative organization that um, lobbies on immigration and favors immigration restrictions for the most part. They're saying, hey, we're able to kill the things on immigration that we don't like, but we're never able to pass what we do like because things have gotten too toxic. And they've come to one of these groups, Braver Angels, to try to learn about their blind spots and how they might start a dialogue that works. In my story, I talk about Dr. Francis Collins. He was head of the National Institutes of Health during the COVID crisis and until recently was the acting science advisor to President Biden. In his personal capacity, he said, look, you know, uh, I just don't understand. We we invented a vaccine. We, we set out to save millions of lives during COVID, and a lot of the country rejected it. So I can guess what they are, but what are some of the biggest challenges to this movement succeeding? Well, there are a few. One, again, is just the relentlessness and coarseness of our dialogue. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the power that's underappreciated in politics, the power of group identity. So many Americans are now kind of just built into their identity that they're a Democrat or a Republican or a Trump supporter or a Democratic supporter. And and once you identify with a group, it's easier to demonize the other party and the other group. And it just kind of, you know, uh, makes it harder to collaborate and to seed ground. Definitely true. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Zittner, reporter and editor at The Wall Street Journal based in Washington, D.C. Coming up next, what's hot in tech for 2024? Hey, it's Gordon Deal, your go-to HelloFresh holiday buddy. Let me tell you, these HelloFresh guys are my secret weapon for a chill holiday. Picture this, skipping those crazy grocery store lines and dodging expensive takeout. Each HelloFresh box is a treasure trove of time and savings, even for a lame in the kitchen like me. It's hassle-free with no waste, no stress. The ingredients are perfectly portioned, so I'm not blowing cash or buying too much. Honestly, it's been a game-changer in these hectic times. With HelloFresh, I'm cutting costs and still savoring amazing home-cooked meals. It's like my holiday magic in a box. Discover the HelloFresh magic yourself. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree and use code GordonFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree with code GordonFree. Delight in the tastes of the season from America's number one meal kit at HelloFresh. HelloFresh.com slash GordonFree. Gordon deals off. He'll return next weekend. It's the end of an interesting year for tech, which saw the rise of AI dominate the headlines. Joining us now is tech analyst Rob Enderly, principal and founder of the Enderly Group. And we're talking about what to expect in tech in 2024. So, Rob, you uh, touched on what we might see in a variety of areas in the year to come. Let's start with AI. Still white hot a year after we all first learned about ChatGPT. What do you see happening there? 
right now, of course, everybody and their brother is building out uh, the hardware side of the technology. Uh, initially, uh, these AIs were running on existing hardware, and now we've got NPUs, that's neural processing units, uh, coming to market in, in 2024, which, which really does mean that it's going to accelerate even faster. So if, this was, um, if you don't like change, this is not going to be the decade for you or the year for you. On a related note, you see the rise of AI deepfakes, probably because of a certain election that's happening in 2024? Well, I, I think the deepfakes are coming forward regardless of the election, but they're certainly going to have an impact. Uh, the the um, uh, already, already deepfakes are being used on news services in South Korea uh, to supplement the reporters, and you really can't tell the difference. The technology has gotten that good. And, uh, of course, as we go into the elections, we're going to see a lot of video of people that aren't of those people look realistic uh, but, but, and sounds realistic, but, but it's, they're deepfakes. And so being able to determine whether you're watching a real video or something that's been constructed with um, artificial intelligence and graphics is going to be increasingly difficult in 2024. And we know that electric cars took a big hit this year. What's the next year look like for that technology? Well, it's not looking good. Uh, the, the, um, the entire automotive industry is now pushing back. Uh, the the um, uh, charging infrastructure isn't where it needs to be. Uh, the battery technology isn't where it needs to be. Uh, this stuff will all get fixed in the next two or three years, but 2024 is, is, is not the year it gets fixed. Uh, and some companies won't even have their next generation electrics out until 2026. So, uh, so this isn't going to be a great year for electrics. The market's going to pull back on electrics rather strongly. Uh, and China... Uh, is coming up so strong with electrics. The only thing that's kind of saving the U.S. market is they're blocked from the U.S. market, but they're doing well in Europe, and they're doing incredibly well uh, in China, with some stats suggesting that uh, BYD, one of the Chinese companies, has already passed Tesla. Also on the subject of cars, autonomous driving. Seems like we've been promised that for a while. Where are we with autonomous driving? We get our first operational level three cars on the road in 2023, high-end and electrics. Um, this means that you can go fully hands-off on freeways. You'll still have to put your hands on the steering wheel uh, in cities and the high-traffic areas. But, uh, but we'll get the first ones that you can kind of sit back and perhaps take a nap and, and take your hands off the steering wheel for a long period of time. Of course, we saw Tesla drivers doing that excessively prior years, which ended badly for a lot of them. But, but this is the first time we'll have technology that is actually designed to do uh, what it was promised, what was promised. And, uh, and we don't really get to level four. Uh, for three or four years. So this is the biggest jump uh, we'll see for the next few years. On the work front, uh, plenty of people still working from home nearly four years after the start of COVID, but you see a slow decline in that trend still. Yeah, largely because we still haven't addressed the need for new employees to really connect with their fellow employees in person um, and uh, and building of relationships in the company when you're remote. And and the uh, end result is, is, is workers are feeling, at least a large percentage of them, are feeling uncomfortable being remote. But managers in particular are, are not comfortable with the number of employees that have been remote. And the end result is that it continues to be a push to bring pet people back into the office. It's a shame. We, this, this is a cycle that goes on about once every 10 years with a pandemic having a, a huge boost to, the, to this latest trend. But we still have not addressed the social aspect of, um, of the work environment with remote workers, and the end result has been uh, a pullback, unfortunately, and, and we're back to, for a lot of us, back to going back into the office. And you also talk about a massive improvement in digital assistance. The ones we have now, like Alexa and Siri, are pretty limited. How could that change? 
Well, that goes back to the AI revolution again. Uh, the, AI, the digital assistants we have in the market today are largely uh, voice-to-text uh, systems that just put you into a, a search, a web search environment. Uh, not very smart at all. Uh, we get uh, uh, AI uh, backing these things in 2024, um, and the end result is we're, they're going to be much more intelligent. They'll be able to anticipate what you need, and if you don't word the query properly, they'll still be able to figure it out. So by the end of the year, I think we'll be thinking a lot more favorably of these digital assistants because they'll be far more capable. Uh, we'll see. It should be an interesting year. Thanks, Rob. Tech analyst Rob Enderly wrapping up 2023. Coming up next, how to make the airlines pay for bumping you. Well, you know, in the game of wits between flyers and airlines this holiday season, it makes sense to wait. We get more now from this weekend's Gordon Deal. We're speaking with Allison Poley, travel reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Her story is called $2,000 for Getting Bumped. How to squeeze the best deal out of airlines. Because as you say, tis the season. It means busy. There's bumping going on. Uh, kind of paint that picture for us. So I think we've all been at flight or been at the airport when we've heard the offer to take a different flight. And sometimes it can be tempting, but you really want to get to where you're trying to go. But if you do take that offer, you don't have to just accept it. You can negotiate it. And I think people who are flying during this extremely busy time over the holidays will be able to take advantage of this. Okay. How so? What do we do? Step one, we think, yeah, you know what? Today's the day. I'm going to take the airline offer. What do we do? So you probably shouldn't take the first offer that comes out. Usually the airlines will start at very low. So $200, a few hundred dollars just to see if anybody accepts it. Then they'll raise it. At that point, you might want to start considering it or at least go over and talk to the gate agent. So people who have successfully taken these offers say you don't want to wait too long because it can go away, but you don't have to stop negotiating once you've accepted the offer. Mm, okay, so you accept the offer and you say, oh, by the way, here's my sob story. Uh, you, you act really nicely. Always be polite and act nicely, but you can ask what else they're able to offer you. So you don't have to take the first route offer that is presented to you. If there's another route that you're familiar with that you're hoping to get on, you can suggest that. So for example, they might say, oh, well, we can't get you out until later tonight um, on the next flight that goes nonstop to your destination, or maybe we can't get you out till the next day. But if you're willing to take a, a layover, let them know. You can suggest other offers. And during that time, you can also ask for other things like food vouchers, hotel vouchers, even lounge access. And they have access to all this stuff. It's just a matter of whether or not they want to give it to you. Like, how does that work? Yeah, it depends on the situation. So, for example, if you're only hanging out for an hour before your next flight, it's probably going to be tough to negotiate for all these other add-ons. But if you're staying overnight, for example, and you do need a hotel, it's completely reasonable to ask for that. I've talked to some travelers who had extremely long amounts of time before their flights, and they asked for transportation vouchers. So if they lived in cities, they could ask for an Uber or Lyft voucher so they could go home and then come back to the airport. We're speaking with Allison Poley, travel reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Her story is called $2,000 for Getting Bumped. How to squeeze the best deal out of airlines. What are the federal guidelines here for bumping passengers? So if you accept an offer as a volunteer, there's no guidelines and the opportunities vary a lot based on the airline. But if you take 
if you are involuntarily bumped, so that means the airline tells you that you are not able to board the flight that you thought you were buying, you do have some rights. So for example, if you have a short delay, you'll probably receive a payment that's about double the one-way price of your original flight. Drill down on this. I book a flight and I even choose my seat. 12C. I'm on the aisle. I can get bumped because somebody else might have 12C or, or it doesn't actually work that way. It doesn't actually work that way. So a lot of times on lower cost carriers where you do not have a seat assignment, you might find yourself getting bumped. So a lot of people rightfully bristle at the idea of, oh, well, I bought this ticket. Now I have to pay for a seat assignment. But doing so can actually help you out because if you have paid for that seat assignment, you're far less likely to get bumped than someone who has not. And review those basics too. Why, why is it that uh, like an involuntary bumping would happen? There's a lot of different reasons. So a lot of people think of oversold flights as being the reason, but a lot of times it's now due to operational issues. So sometimes airlines aren't able to get their planes where they need to be. So they might substitute a different plane. If that happens, the flight that you're on might have fewer seats than the than was initially planned. That means some people aren't going to be able to fit. Allison Poli, travel reporter for The Wall Street Journal with the staycationing Gordon Deal. Coming up next, why Netflix is concerned about your kids watching so much YouTube. Mike Gavin in for Gordon Deal. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Coming up this half hour, why your kids' love of YouTube is bad news for Netflix, why our New Year's resolutions often fall short and how to take more action, why the cool people are suddenly hot on seeing shows and movies during the day, and our profile of some of the everyday heroes who made news for the right reasons in 2023. We'll have that later in the hour. If you have kids, especially tweens and teens, you know how much of a grip YouTube has on their viewing habits, and that's bad news for paid streaming services like Netflix. To explain, we bring in Jessica Tunkel, Deputy Media Editor at The Wall Street Journal. Jessica, I know YouTube is almost always on when my kids are watching TV. Take us through what's been happening here. So it's interesting. I mean, what we've started to see is that streamers are learning, losing market share of 2 to 11-year-olds to YouTube. So, for instance, for instance, Netflix share of U.S. streaming viewership by 2 to 11-year-olds fell to 21% in September. That's down from 25% two years earlier, where YouTube share has jumped to 30% from about 29.4% two years earlier. So you're really starting to see the shift in kids' viewership. I know that's the case in my house. YouTube's on 24-7 in my house with my young kids. Why do kids prefer YouTube over the paid streaming services? So I think it's a few things. I think one is just the nature of YouTube, as you've probably seen with your own kids. They'll watch something that they like, and the way that YouTube's algorithm works, it's like right away they'll YouTube will show you something else that you want to watch. And so it's these short snippets of content. You know, it could be anywhere from five to, in some cases, 20 minutes. And it just keeps feeding you that content so they can just keep watching. And it's a huge array of content, right? It can be from kids playing video games to animated cartoons to a science experiment. So there's a lot of different kinds of content to watch. So this is obviously alarming to the streaming services like Netflix. How are they trying to adapt to this? So what, you know, Netflix has known the power of YouTube for some time. As you probably know, since you have kids, one of Netflix's most popular kids shows is Coco Melon, which originated on YouTube. And 
the way that Netflix was able to license that content from the creator of Coco Melon Moonbug was by allowing that show to continue to be on YouTube. And that was a big shift for Netflix because Netflix likes to have all the shows exclusively on its own streaming platform. But over the past you know, few months, we've started to see Netflix allow for more full episodes of shows to go on YouTube. In some places, people are putting things on Roblox at the same time or before they debut on Netflix as a way to like lure the kids and say, hey, kids, come here. Come watch the rest of the show here. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shift for them. Another big problem you write for the streaming services is the time it takes to produce new shows. These kids, they you know, can lose interest. They grow up quickly and they lose interest before the new episodes can even come out. Right. So animation, that's specifically related to animation. So animated shows take, can take anywhere from two years, if not longer, to make. So what happens is, unless you decide right away, I'm going to not just create one season of the show, but I'm going to create two or three seasons of the show, it's gonna, there's going to be a huge delay between the first season and the second season. And the problem is with kids' content, as you know, kids will age out, and so they might not care about the show anymore when the second season comes out and you have to find a new audience. Yeah, what, so what does this mean now for the future of the paid streaming services? If the younger generation, they're not getting in the habit of watching them, they're watching YouTube instead. What does it mean for the, kind of the future of longer-form programming here? So I think it does depend on the streaming service. I mean, Disney Plus still maintains is the king of all kids' content. You know, Bluey is a huge show. I think it's more about these streamers finding the content that will resonate with the kids. Um, you know, Netflix has Coco Melon. I think Netflix has decided to not try to make kids' shows as much as they used to because it's hard to create those Bluey franchises or the Coco Melons of the world. And then you have shows like, you know, you have streamers like Max, formerly HBO Max, that have just decided we're not going to go all in on kids' content. We're going to have some family-oriented content, but we're really going to focus on different audiences and older audiences. All right. Thanks, Jessica. Jessica Tunkel, Deputy Media Editor at The Wall Street Journal. Coming up on this weekend, taking more action in 2024. The new year is almost here, a time when we take stock of the resolutions we made a year ago and realize just how bad we were at keeping them. Why are we so bad at taking action and actually making the positive changes we so desperately want to make? For that answer, we turn to Boris Bloom, an optimal performance consultant also known as the CEO Consigliere. Boris, let's start here. How bad is our procrastination problem? Oh, it's awful. I mean, uh, people often have way too much on their plate to begin with, but uh, in today's distracted world with social media and everything else that's going on, uh, it just creates a sense of overwhelm and they just uh, can't handle it any longer and they just stop trying. Yeah. So why do so many of us, whether it's exercising, losing weight, changing bad habits, whatever, why do we lose our motivation after a couple weeks of trying? Well, I think it starts with the fact that most people haven't really figured out why they're engaging in whatever they want to try to engage in with. I mean, they have a to-do list that's never ending, and they've not really sat down to try to organize the activities to see if it's stuff that they really need to, to pay attention to. Is it truly important to them? Does it matter to them? Um, you know, I always talk about, you know, you, you want to do something, you need to do something, you have to do something, all of those factors, but until they figure out the reasons that they need to do things, uh, they're not likely to take action. And that's what happens when people, uh, you know, make a New Year's resolution, they're going to lose weight, they're going to start going to the gym or whatever else. But by the, you know, second week in January, they're overloaded with uh, tasks and things that they got to do, and they've never really thought about 
why that's important. Things start to take priorities over that, and they just stop trying. So how do the people who are really good at being productive manage to get that done, and then what bad habits do they avoid? Well, the number one thing I've noticed from high performers is they oftentimes um, sit down and intentionally decide what are the things in their life that matter to them the most. And then once they've got that list, they use it as a filter to kind of take all the distractions out of their way. So anytime that somebody comes to them with a task or something that they want to do, and I know it's easier said than done, but they're really good at saying no. And that's what it comes down to is there's a lot of things that you just have to say no to. Uh, and sometimes that's uh, difficult because it's even inside your family and spouses, you know, come to us and they ask us to do things. And, you know, uh, it's a really hard thing to say, but you got to say, look, right now I'm overloaded. I got too much on my plate and I, I need to focus on what's important. We're speaking with Boris Bloom, an optimal performance consultant about the art of taking action, especially as we head into the new year. You know, sometimes we may think about being productive, but we're in reality, we're just wasting time or procrastinating so that we don't have to work on something else. Else. How can we tell the difference between those two things? Well, if you've got some sort of a filter, uh, as I mentioned, uh, it makes it really easy. Um, most people sit down, this is a time of reflection for them for the new year, and they sit down and think about what they want to accomplish next year. Uh, this is a great time to think about what are those things that they're going to use as a filter in the future to decide what actions they're going to take and what actions they're not going to take. A good example of that would be something like uh, working out or um, making a change in terms of their diet. If you sit down and you write down all of the reasons why you need to do this, and sometimes those reasons are even external, like, you know, you went and had a health checkup and the doctor says, hey, you, you really need to do this or you're going to have severe consequences in to the future. Sometimes a wake-up call like that becomes the, the impetus for us to start to really delve deep into why these things are important to us. And then they make small incremental changes. If you try to change the world all in one day and make 15 changes that relate to your health, you're not likely to implement them all. But if you start with one or two things and slowly and slowly increase the amount of habits that you're forming, because this all comes down to habit forming over time, uh, you'll be able to implement things much easier. And we all have excuses as to why we're not succeeding in our resolutions or our goals. How do we push past those? I think excuses are just common. Uh, it's human nature, right? You want to try to find reasons why you're you're not living up to your own standard. But high performers oftentimes set standards for themselves that are much higher than everybody else would ever expect. And, and that's part of the reason why it makes it easier for themselves, because they don't allow excuses to kind of get in the way. All right. Thanks, Boris. Boris Bloom, Optimal Performance Consultant. His website is borisbloom, B-L-U-M dot com. Coming up next on this weekend, why all the cool kids are out during the day all of a sudden. Gordon's off. He will return next weekend. I'm Mike Gavin. Matinee shows used to be the domain for retirees and tourists, but with people having more flexible schedules these days, that has been changing. More from this weekend's Jennifer Kashenka. It used to be that the only people who could attend a Broadway matinee were on the senior side, visitors, mostly women. But that appears to be changing as we hear from Charles Passy, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Charles, why are the people who used to get gussied up for a big night out on the town showing up during the day? Well, you know, it's, I think it really is basically a post-pandemic kind of changing dynamic. Um, people seem to have more flexible schedules. Um, people seem to just be, uh, have that sort of 2 p.m. slot open in their lives or they can make it work. And people also don't want to stay out late at night anymore. So you add it all up 
and you have a bunch of 20, 30, 40, and 50-somethings going to matinees. And I think what's even funnier is they don't know they're not supposed to go. So, I mean, that really was kind of a thread when I talked to, to, to various people, is that, um, that they don't know that there's certain rules about who's a typical matinee goer, so they're just going. You did talk to a number of people for your story. What was their reasoning for going during the day? Well, you know, basically, just kind of like what I indicated, um, they, they can work out. I mean, people have incredible flexibility in their schedules now, so they can make it work for them. And, you know, they either like to be in bed a little earlier these days. Again, it seems to be something that's sort of been a post-pandemic shift. Um, frankly, a lot of them told me that um, they find it a little bit cheaper and a little bit easier to get tickets for shows. I mean, the evening shows still obviously have their crowd. So, you know, so they feel like there's a little bit of an advantage, you know, and also, frankly, um, at least in the case of at least two shows, there are more matinee opportunities. Two shows now have actually added uh, a fourth matinee to their schedule. Plus this week, um, which is the busiest week in the Broadway calendar, lots of shows add matinee performances. So, so it's, it's, it's convenient for people to go. We're speaking with Charles Passy, columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Is this a trend? Is it like a flash in the pan, or do we think going forward there will be more matinees added? I, I think there's no question that everybody in the Broadway community is looking at um, what's happening with the shows that have added a fourth matinee. So, so now there, there, are, there are two shows um, that are doing Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday matinees. Um, traditionally, there's only been three matinee performances a week, so the Thursday is the addition. And I think everybody's looking at how they're doing and, um, and kind of deciding if they do want to go that route. I have heard from a couple of different producers on Broadway that they're fairly close to adding more matinees. So I think, I think we're going to see this happen. Again, you know, uh, producers will do what they think will sell them the most tickets. And if indeed people are going to matinees, they're going to create more opportunities for them to go to them. You did mention that the prices might be a little better. Do we know if there's a big difference between night and afternoon? Generally, matinees are going to be cheaper. I mean, Broadway has what's called, like like sports teams and other, other venues, has what's called dynamic pricing. So if there's more demand, uh, ticket prices are going to be higher. If there's less demand, ticket prices are going to be lower. So generally speaking, there, you know, matinees have been, uh, you know, traditionally a little softer. So, so there has been an opportunity to buy a ticket usually for a little less, or there may be more opportunities for discounted tickets on matinees. Wall Street Journal contributor Charles Passy with this weekend's Jennifer Kashinka. Coming up next, the Everyday Heroes of 2023. Well, you know, we like to profile people doing good on our show, and there were plenty of those stories in 2023. Fox News compiled a list of the top Good Samaritan moments of the year, like the man who pulled a driver from a burning car in Florida in September. Travis DuPont, who was on his way home from work, pulled over just in time to pull the man from the vehicle, saying that if he had been even 30 seconds later, it would have been too late. Or the karate instructors that thwarted would-be carjackers in California in August, running after the suspects and busting their car's windows with wooden sticks to scare them off. And who can forget the group of Utah high school students who lifted a car off of a trapped mother and children earlier this month. The Leighton Christian Academy students rushed onto the scene and managed to lift the car about two inches off of the ground, allowing the trapped family to be pulled out safely. That'll do it for this weekend. We thank you for listening and have a happy new year.